Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. Today is the final message from uh, the Ocean series. It's a four-part series, and the whole theme of the series has been to look at the ocean, especially uh, where we can find them, scriptures that deal with the ocean and find theological symbolism in the ocean. Theology, or the word theological, deals with, with uh, things about God and God things. Uh, that's what theology deals with. The first two of these messages, we saw how the ocean reminds us of God, his majesty, his power, his mystery, uh, his everywhere presence, that he is one God who reveals himself as three persons. Uh, we saw all those things that uh, were symbols of God in the ocean. That was the first two messages. Last week, we dealt with how the ocean is symbolic of, of the life that we live, the sea of life. A lot of old gospel songs uh, touch on this theme. Today, I want to uh, bring this series to a close and talk about how some of the biblical writers viewed the ocean. I was talking with a lady uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about vacations and where each of our families were going for vacation, and, and she mentioned that uh, she, was, uh, she and some of her family were going to the beach, and I said, well, I guess uh, you and your husband and, and kids and your family, you all be going. She said, well, uh, my husband won't be going. It'll be me and my sister and, and uh, some of our friends. We're going to be going down for a week. My husband just hates the ocean. He can't stand the ocean. And so I didn't want to burden him by putting him through uh, the toil of going to the ocean. She said, but after we get back from the ocean, my husband and I are going to the mountains. He loves to go to the mountains, and I do too. And so we're going to go to the mountains together. But her husband did not like the ocean at all didn't like the ocean. I see folks sometimes who don't like the ocean. Uh, I love the ocean. I can't get enough of the ocean. And uh, people, uh, people who uh, don't like the ocean, uh, they're some of the most ungodly people I know. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't understand this. Um, by the way, yes, we're having some lighting issues up there that uh, we're having to work through. Thank you for your patience with us. We're not trying to uh, freak those of you in the middle out back there. Um, some folks don't like the ocean. My wife Amanda loves the beach, but she will not get in the ocean. I asked her about it uh, a few weeks ago. We were down uh, on the Gulf with uh, uh, our son and daughter and my son's wife, Nicole, and our grandbaby, Bellamy, and we were down on the beach, and I said, let's go to the ocean. She said, I don't go in the ocean, which I knew that. She said, I don't go in the ocean. Why not? There are critters in there that uh, I don't like and who potentially do not like me, so she will not go into the ocean. So what I find is that among pretty much any group of people, you have some folks who love the ocean, can't get enough of it. You have others who care nothing about it or either just absolutely don't like it at all. And when I read the Bible, those Bible books that have anything at all dealing with the sea or with the ocean, what I find are the same kind of sentiments. Some of the, the biblical writers loved the ocean. The writer of Genesis even opened up 
the book of Genesis opened up the Bible with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The writer of Genesis. The psalmist, when they talk about the ocean, they, more often than not, they, they talk about how the ocean reminds them of God, the good attributes of God, his majesty, his sovereignty, his, uh, his mystery, his power. But there are other Bible writers who do not like the ocean so well at all. And so the first thing I want to say here, since we don't have the slides to say this to you, I want you to get this. The biblical writers had mixed opinions about the ocean. Some of them, like the psalmist and the writer of Genesis, liked the ocean a lot, reminded them a lot about God. There are other Bible writers who did not like the ocean at all. In Isaiah 57, there's a place where Isaiah said that the ocean reminds him of the wickedness of humanity, the wickedness of mankind. So evidently, just by that uh, statement alone, Isaiah didn't have a a whole lot of good to say about the ocean. There are mixed opinions about what the ocean actually can mean. Uh, The writer Micah, the Old Old Testament prophet Micah, he, he viewed the ocean as a garbage dump for our sins, as a moral garbage dump. Listen to these words. This is from Micah chapter 7. Verses 18 and 19, Micah says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You, you do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot, and here's it, here it is, and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. For Micah When he saw the ocean, he thought of it as a garbage dump for our sins. Now, he did not mean, and and we cannot say that the sea is where our sins go. He's speaking figuratively here. We know as Christians that when Jesus died on the cross, all of our sins went on him. And through the cross, he provided for our salvation so long as we invite him into our lives to be our Savior and our Lord. But several of the biblical writers did not view the ocean positively. They viewed it as a place that was a garbage dump for our sins. There are other places where in the scriptures where the biblical writers viewed uh, the ocean as the place that separates them from God and from the people they love. And so that's the second thing I want to tell you. Uh, there are those who, in the Bible, who, who see the ocean as the garbage dump of our sins. There are other writers who see the ocean as that which separates us, as separation and death and evil. So if you have your Bibles, I, I want you to look with me to Roman, I mean, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Uh, and we'll be looking at Revelation 4, then a little later in Revelation 13, and finally in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 4, the verse 6 verses, John, who is the writer of the Revelation, uh, is, he's living during the last decade of the first century. It's in the 90s uh, uh, in the first century, and uh, the Roman Empire is in power. The Roman emperor is a, a fellow by the name of Domitian. He hated Christians. 
Uh, he felt that they were a threat to his power, and so he persecuted Christians. There are Christians he uh, murdered. There are Christians he tortured. There are Christians whose jobs and houses uh, were, he took away, took away from them. There are other Christians who he took their families, split them up, and divided them out, never to see each other again. Uh, so he was very... Uh, uh, he was a terror to, to Christians at the end of the, the first century. And the people John was writing to, they were asking John, John, what are we supposed to do with all this? I mean, our lives are falling apart. The empire is against us. What are we supposed to do with this? John is in prison on the island of Patmos. And so these people are writing to him and he's coming up with, with God's response to these people. But keep in mind that they are separated from him by the sea. He loved to be with them. He formerly was the pastor of uh, these folks who's, who were writing to him, but he's separated from them. He can't get to them because he's, he's in prison, separated by a sea. While he's there, John is taken up to heaven in a vision. And in that vision, he's taken up to heaven so he can see what's happening up in heaven, but also so that he can see what's happening on earth from the vantage point of heaven. You see, a lot of times when we're in our struggles, when we are in our darkest times, we, we feel like, because it looks like all there is, is the darkness. All there is are the struggles. And, and, and what, what John, what God wanted John to see is that if, if we can somehow view our situation from the vantage point of heaven, then the darkness becomes very, very small. Because there's a whole lot more than just the trial that we're going through. Granted, there is the trial, there is the struggle, but there's so much more if we're able to look at it from the vantage point of heaven. And so John is carried up into heaven, and uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through uh, 6a. It says, uh, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. That would be God. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. So uh, John sees this picture of uh, God on his throne in heaven. Okay. That's what he's seeing so far. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders, 24 elders. Some will tell you, some commentators will tell you that that 24 elders made up, was made up of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel or the tri 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 apostles. I think that they missed the point, though, because what you find in the Revelation is that anytime you have a number of people and that number is 12 or any multiple of 12, then John is referring symbolically to the people of God. So whether it's 12 or 24, or if it is 144,000, as we'll see later in the Revelation, these are multiples of 12. And so John is seeing there the people of God who are already gone on to be with the Lord. All right? So what is John seeing? He sees God on his throne, and he sees all the people of God who are already there with God. Okay? Now... Uh, verse number five, 
From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Now look at verse 6. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So what has John seen in this vision of heaven? He sees God on his throne. He sees 24 elders that represent all the people of God, including some he knew who have already died and gone on to be with the Lord. But between where John is and where God and God's people who've died, have, uh, where they are, there is a sea, what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now, if this were the only passage in Revelation where John talks about the sea, we would look at it and we might be tempted to think John really liked the sea. He, he describes it in these such calming uh, adjectives. Uh, it is a, a sea of glass, smooth like glass. It's clear as crystal. doesn't have any seaweed or anything in it. But uh, don't be lulled into thinking that John liked it. John did not like the sea because for John, the sea was what was coming between him and God on the throne. And the sea was what was coming between him and people that he knew in churches who had died and gone on to be with the Lord. There was a separation that John symbolizes by a sea in Revelation chapter 4. So again, some biblical writers didn't care too much about the ocean because they saw it um, as a place of separation from God and those that they love who've gone on to be with the Lord. Now, I want you to take a bookmark, uh, whether a real bookmark or, or an imaginary one, I want you to put a bookmark there in Revelation chapter 4 because uh, there, there's something that we're going, to, we're going to see later in the Revelation that we will hark back to Revelation 4 in just a moment. Something very, very important. But for now, let's just suffice it to say that John saw the, saw the ocean as something that separated him from God and those that he loved. Now, the next thing I want you to know about how biblical writers saw the ocean is this. They saw the ocean as the place that uh, consisted of all kinds of the worst kind of evil in the world. They saw it as a place of evil. Uh, in this respect, uh, John would have agreed with, with my Amanda. Uh, I'm not going in the ocean. John would not have gone in the ocean because there are places of evil there. It symbolizes evil for John. Now, uh, I, I want you to turn with me, if, again, if you have your Bibles, to Revelation 13. When you get to Revelation 13, John sees two creatures. One is a dragon and one is a beast. The dragon is standing on the shore next to the sea. Uh, at, at some, in some pictures there, he has one foot in the ocean and one foot on the beach, one foot on the shore. So he sees a dragon. But then coming up out of the ocean, in addition to the dragon, John sees a beast. Now, John does not like these two creatures. He doesn't like the dragon. He doesn't like the beast. He describes them as being creatures who are totally opposed to everything God is doing. So, I want to read for you Revelation chapter 13, the first eight verses, if you have your Bibles. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea 
And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on its horns, and each and on each head it had a blasphemous name. So John is not very positive about these creatures. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So what you have here, uh, the dragon actually is, is a symbolic picture of Satan. And the beast for John in the latter part of the first century, the beast represented the Roman emperor Domitian. And so uh, Domitian was evil. And as, insofar as John was concerned, the, the, the devil... The dragon, Satan, was empowering Domitian to persecute and to kill and to terrorize Christians. Now, verse number three. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. You know what a fatal wound is? A fatal wound is a wound that you incur that kills you. That's what fatal means. A fatal wound, it kills you. If you, if, if you see somebody with a fatal wound, they're dead. Because that's what fatal means. So he says, he seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Uh, Let me tell you something about uh, uh, Satan and his work. He presents himself as equal with God. Satan will always do that. He presents himself as as on equal plane with God. And he even wants you to believe, he wants you and me to believe that he has the same traits, the same attributes that God does. For instance, Satan loves it that many of us, including most Christians, believe that he is everywhere present. Guess what? He's not. Satan loves it when most people, including most Christians, believe that he is all-powerful. Guess what? He's not. Other people believe that that Satan is all-wise. Now, granted, he is wise. He is smart. He is clever. He's connivingly clever. But Satan is not all-wise. He is not all-powerful. He is not everywhere present. Those are traits that only belong to God himself. But Satan would love for us to think that he is on equal planes with God. Now, I mention that here because this beast that is empowered by the dragon, he has what John says, what seemed to have been a fatal wound, a wound that killed him, and yet the fatal wound had healed. Now, what that meant was that this beast was presenting himself as someone who had died and rose again from the dead. Now, folks, uh, when I say someone who died and rose again from the dead, the first thing that ought to come into your mind is not that a beast could do that, but that Jesus Christ did do that. You understand what I'm saying? But this beast has this, wants, wants people to believe that he has died and has come back from the dead. Why is that so important to the beast? Because he wants you to think that there's nothing Jesus has done that he hasn't done. Y'all with me? So here you have this dragon, this beast. They're evil, they're conniving, they're fooling a lot of people, and, and they are coming up out of 
the ocean. Now watch, watch this beginning with uh, the latter part of verse 3. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Why did the world follow after this beast? Because they believed he was equal with God. He had fooled them. What's one of the greatest lies that Satan is getting people all around the world today to believe is to believe that, that, that their form of Christianity, their form of beliefs is Jesus' form of beliefs. And it may not even be so. Verse 4, people worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. They also worship the beast and ask, who is like the beast who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise its authority for 42 months, three and a half years. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Why? Why would they go after something that evil? Because they thought it was godly. Not everything that you and I think is godly is godly. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Those are the ones who worship the beast. Now, the, the point I want to get here, I, I, want you to, I want to get over to you how evil this dragon and this beast are, how sneaky and conniving and clever they are, how deceiving they are. And John says, they, one was standing on the shore, a foot in the ocean, a foot on the, on the shore. The other one, the beast came up out of the ocean. So the ocean was the place where the worst kind of evil originated in John's mind. And again, he's speaking in symbols. John doesn't like the ocean. But, and this is the good news. John also saw the ocean as a place that would not exist forever. Now, I would hate that, really. I mean, you know, uh, being in heaven, there being an ocean would be just fine with me. But for John, keep in mind, he sees it as symbolic of all this evil and all this separation and all this death. But John saw the ocean as something that would not forever exist. So let me remind you, back in Revelation chapter 4, John saw a sea, and the sea separated him from God and from the people of God. In Revelation 13, there was a sea, and out from that sea came the dragon and the beast, all kinds of evil, right? Now, return to the Bible one more time to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. This time, John sees heaven again, but it's a fast-forward to the end. And it says this. Watch this. Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and, get this and, and there was no longer any sea. No more sea. Revelation chapter 4, there's a sea. Revelation chapter 13, there's a sea, and neither place does John like the sea. But in Revelation 21, 
There is no more sea. In other words, for John, there was no more separation, no more death, no more evil, no more Satan, no more Satan's entourage. All of that was gone, and, and, and instead of, of, of a sea that separated him from God, he was with God. Instead of a sea that separated him from the people he knew who had died and gone on to be with the Lord, he was with them. No more sea. John didn't like the sea. This morning, uh, Grover and Cynthia Curry were here in our worship. They buried their daughter, Dottie, last week. She was 53. Beautiful, dynamic, a health enthusiast. She, she, she taught physical training. She died of cancer at the age of 53. This week, Shannon Laster lost, this past Sunday, Shannon Laster, Jimbo's wife, Shannon lost her dad. I see Tara Freeman over here, her mother died a few, just three weeks ago. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost parents. And some of you have lost a spouse. And you know, and only you know, the canyon of, the the big old canyon hole that you felt ever since you lost that person. You and I live right now in Revelation chapter 4. That's where we are. Because between us and heaven, with God on his throne, and between us and heaven where Miss Jane Edwards is, where J.T. Joyner is, where Dottie Priatko is, there is is like a sea of glass. A separation. That's what John saw in Revelation chapter 4. That's where we are right now. You and I are here. We're separated from those folks. But we will not forever live in Revelation chapter 4, ladies and gentlemen. There's coming a time when all of those who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we will no longer live in Revelation 4. We will live in Revelation 21, and there will be no more sea, no more separation, no more evil, no more death, no more sadness, no more struggle, no more sea. So what does... What do the oceans teach us about evil? The, the, the oceans teach us that evil exists and it is both powerful and terrifying, but it's not God. What do the oceans teach us about separation and death? The oceans teach us that death and separation from God and our loved ones is a reality that ought to bring sadness to us. What do the oceans teach us about eternity? They teach us that evil and separation... And death will not exist forever because all of those have been conquered by Christ. It's amazing what you can find in the ocean.
Let's pray. Lord, your creation teaches us so many things. Psalm 19 is so true. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. Lord, our few weeks looking at the ocean has taught us so much about you, so much about life. And today, Lord, we're reminded that the ocean separates us. There's an ocean between here and where you are that separates us. We have loved ones who've gone on to be with you. We're separated from them because we live in Revelation 4. But Lord, we look forward to the day when we no longer live in Revelation 4. We're in Revelation 21. What concerns me right now, though, Lord, is that in this room right now, there are people who are not ready for death to come. They're not ready to live in Revelation 21 because they have not yet received you as their Savior. Lord, I pray that before they leave this building, they will have invited you into their lives. For all eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.